0: Now Jesus told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling. But later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, Yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The point of the parable is to highlight God's benevolence and his sovereignty. If an unjust judge will grant justice to a widow merely because she is persistent, how much more will the good God who rules in heaven give justice to his people? Indeed, God's people should always pray without giving up, trusting that God is good and that he will ultimately bring about justice. Indeed, King Jesus rules everything, and he responds to the prayers of his people. That's our main idea this morning that King Jesus rules everything and responds to prayer. And in light of that, I want to exhort you to persevere and pray. And not just you individually, but us as a church, to persevere and to pray together. Indeed, prayer expresses our dependence on God rather than our own innovation our need for God above all else. So let's begin by praying, and then we'll talk context and get into the text. God, we thank you that you hear us, that you know all about our struggles and our sufferings, that you listen and that you always act according to your benevolent purposes. We thank you that you are far wiser than we could ever hope to be. We thank you that even though we might not understand each and every one of your actions, we can understand that you love us, that you are for us and for our good. The cross is evidence of that. Indeed, you are the God who has bled so that his people might live. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We ask now that you would help us to listen to your word, that you would change us by it, and that you would cause us to love you more passionately, as a result of the time we spend together this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Acts, the Spirit... I'm sorry, I see I messed it up. In Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. And as the church goes out in Acts, what we see is that God brings people in. So if you wanted to add to our little kind of mnemonic device for what happens in the book of Acts, Jesus goes up as he ascends to the throne in chapter 1 from where he rules and reigns. You want the fancy word, we call it the ascension. You want the more simple version, Jesus goes up. The Spirit comes down at Pentecost, fills up the church with the Spirit of God as they begin declaring the works of God, share the gospel, and people begin to believe it. The church is born and the church goes out. The the witness that's within the church fills up Jerusalem and goes to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus said it would. And as the church goes out, more and more people are brought in by God. God uses his church to carry his message to the nations. Indeed, we, we have seen this take place. We just got done seeing how God brings Gentiles into the church. And there's a, there's a, a church at Antioch and, and it's made up of primarily Gentiles. It's got diverse leadership, people from all kinds of backgrounds, as we see at the we'll see in the front end of Acts chapter 13. That that this movement isn't just a Jewish movement, that God isn't just about saving the Jewish people, but He's about saving anyone who will turn from their sins and come to Him in faith. It's really extraordinary. And then we come to chapter 12, which is where we're at today, Acts chapter 12. And we go, I'm not sure exactly why this chapter is here. Because very simply, at the end of 11, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to take a kind of a relief offering to a church. And we could just pick up at the end of chapter 12, like verse 25, you can see it there. After they'd completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. And so all the stuff that happens in between in 12, we're going, all right, why is it here? And I think two reasons, primarily. One is uh, the camera has been focused on Peter and the church in Jerusalem for the large part of the book of Acts to this point. And Peter is going to kind of go away. He's going to become more of a minor character. And the camera's going to pan over and begin focusing on Paul. And the attention is going to be more on the church at Antioch, to which we were just introduced last week. So there's kind of a, a transitioning in leadership, transitioning in focus. And then the second reason is simply to magnify what is the primary theme of Acts once more, and we can see it there in verse 24, the word of God flourished and multiplied. So we see over and over and over again throughout Acts is that God's word is going out, people are believing it, and the church is growing. And so in this chapter, we see the power of God demonstrated and the triumph of his word once more. And so if you wanted to just kind of remember some really big picture themes in this chapter, you could write down uh, transition and triumph. Kind of a transitioning of leadership, transitioning of focus, and then the triumph of the gospel. We see time and again that the word of God flourishes, but it's not, not an easy thing. There is adversity. And as we've said time and time again, in the face of adversity, God's word prevails. And it prevails again this morning. But our chapter opens on a melancholy note. Look with me at verse 1. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. Uh, quick note, this is not the same King Herod that slaughtered the infants when Jesus was born. Right? There are a bunch of Herods in the Bible. Uh, and this Herod is actually the grandson of, of the Herod who tried to kill the infant Jesus. And so while he's not the same Herod, that I can't remember that Herod's actual name. This is Herod Agrippa, maybe Antipas. This, this is Herod Agrippa, and he, he didn't order the slaughter of children, but apparently he shares his grandfather's penchant for violence. Okay, so he, he's attacking the church. At this time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. He executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after Passover. Things are grim. James is dead. Peter is next. This pleases the Jews. There is opposition to the church. It's dangerous to be a Christian, it's dangerous to follow. Jesus, it always has been, and it always will be. Jesus encouraged his disciples, saying, you will have trouble in this world. Great, thanks. But take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. And that's true even when it doesn't seem like it. James was likely killed by beheading sword. It didn't really feel like God was in control, that, that Jesus was overcoming the world. Peter is arrested. It doesn't really feel like Jesus is overcoming the world, but it does feel like there is a whole lot of trouble. Christ was not lying when he said that he overcame the world, but he also wasn't lying when he said, take up your cross deny yourself and follow me. The take up the cross part is important because it costs to follow Jesus. It always has and it still does. I mean, In our country, the most we suffer is a loss of reputation. I mean, it's getting a little bit more hostile to us, but typically people are not, not putting us in, Christ, in prison for following Jesus. Not killing us for being Christians. There is distaste some social ostracizing some shame but not death i wonder are we are we even willing to pay the minor cost of a few hits to our reputation to follow jesus because the type of persecution that james is experienced and that peter Experiences that the type of persecution described in Acts has never stopped. It's being experienced right now by brothers and sisters of ours across the globe. Think of 2015, when 21 Egyptian Christians were beheaded for being Christians. Or just this month, where 79 Presbyterian schoolchildren, ages 11 to 17, kidnapped in Cameroon. And the ransom demanded that they would close the Christian schools down. In the same region, just this month, Charles Wesco, father of eight, after having just moved to Cameroon two weeks prior, was gunned down because he was a missionary in Cameroon. And just just a month ago, a little over a month ago, Charles Wesco is getting his eight children and his wife ready to move to Cameroon to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because Jesus has overcome the world and the gospel is true. And now in mid-November, he's a sermon illustration. Three important things we need to know about following Jesus. Three important things we need to consider when it comes to a decision about following Jesus. One is that it is costly. So you should consider it carefully, deciding to follow Jesus. Two is that this is an urgent decision, and so it needs to be made quickly. And the third thing is that following Jesus is worth it and so you'll never regret it. There have been myriads of martyrs since the inception of the church, and not one of them, not Charles Wesco, not James, not Peter, because he eventually dies, none of them have ever regretted it because following Jesus is worth it. Taking up the cross and denying ourselves so that we might truly live is worth it. It is dangerous to follow Jesus, but it is worth it. I want you to remember that this morning, that he is worth anything he calls you to give up. The world may condemn you, but God will vindicate you. You might have trouble in the world, but Jesus has overcome the world. time will prove that to be true. Indeed, it's dangerous to follow Jesus, but it is more dangerous to forsake him. It is more dangerous to persist in rebellion against him. It's more dangerous to refuse to acknowledge him as God. It's more dangerous to break his laws. It's more dangerous to follow your heart, and to live for yourself as your own God than it is to follow Jesus. The world might celebrate you in the short term, but in the long term, Jesus will condemn you. This truth is illustrated for us at the back end of our chapter in verses 20 through 24. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And together, they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedrooms, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on a throne, Herod delivered a speech to them the assembled people began to shout, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. At once, an angel of the Lord struck Herod because he did not give the glory to God. He was eaten by worms and died. Herod was about Herod. He lived for himself, fancied himself a king, sought after glory, and he did it via people-pleasing. He pleased the Jews, and so he killed James and arrested Peter. His whole life is about hearing that applause from the people around him. His whole life is about getting himself celebrated. And it seems, for a moment, he gets it. As the crowds erupt, this is the voice of a God, not a man. He's seated on his throne, dressed in royal robes, which the historian Josephus tells us had uh, silver kind of woven into it. And So uh, it would have been like somebody on Capitol Hill dressed in tinfoil, addressing a bunch of people, right? Just shining out, beaming this glory. His glory is very short term. Because in a moment he is struck and he dies. Herod ends up eaten by worms. There's all kinds of speculation about what that means. It's usually just a uh, kind of literary shorthand to talk about the death of kings. It could literally mean there's a bacteria. Josephus records that he goes in, and uh, there's a series of events, but long long story short, he dies after like five days from some bacterial infection, eaten by worms and dies. Either way, Herod ends up very dead. See, by all appearances, Herod was in control when Herod was on the throne. He had people arrested and killed. He addressed people. He received their praise. When you think about Jesus' words, I've overcome the world, they, they, don't, they don't seem true right at that moment. Neither do they seem true right after he speaks them. Stakes heart, I've overcome the world. and Then he goes to a cross. By all appearances, Jesus is not king, was not king. Jesus was stripped. Jesus was humiliated. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was spat upon. Jesus had a crown of thorns put on his head. Jesus was nailed to a tree. Jesus was put in a tomb. You see, the key word there is was. Because Jesus is alive. Jesus is ruling and reigning. Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe. Jesus is our God. And the key word here is, is. See, by all appearances, in the very, very short-term way we kind of think about things, if we had to choose a side here in the first century, you know, it didn't look like this Jesus guy was very much, he wasn't very much of a king. But Herod, there's a king. Ah, friends, don't be so short-sighted. Jesus is the king. And everything that happens, happens under his purview, according to his providence. Herod is not the king. Jesus is. Herod is not in control of the events of Acts 12. Jesus is. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without his say-so. Indeed, he's numbered the hairs on your head. Jesus rules everything. And he responds to the prayers of his people. Which is why the church responds to Peter's imprisonment in verse 5 with prayer. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him when herod was about to bring him out for trial that very night peter bound with two chains was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison and so you have got 16 people guarding one man right herod has got his like max security on peter Peter, Peter's not going to go anywhere. He, he's got four, four, I think this is in verse 4, right? Four squads of four soldiers each to guard him. And then he's got a soldier on each side of him with chains on his wrist holding him to make sure he doesn't go anywhere. Maybe Herod heard about his previous prison break. I don't know, but he's making sure Peter's not going anywhere. I don't want to spoil the story, but Peter's going to hes going to get out. Um, and and what happens here in verses 18 and 19 is revealing. Like These weren't just some you know, rent-a-cop guys getting paid minimum wage, like, oh, (laughs) these things are getting a little heavy. We're just going to let him go. Now, these are guys who knew that if Peter escapes, they're going to get whatever sentence he was due. That's how it used to work. And in this case, Peter was going to be killed. And so we read in verse 18, at daylight there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards And ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. And and so you can see he's spared no expense in making sure that Peter doesn't get out. And Peter, even though he's like on death row, the church is praying for him. He's got two guys. He's chained to two guys. He falls asleep, like. This must have been Peter's spiritual gift, y'all. I mean, he, you know, I just think of Jesus immediately. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, and Jesus like, hey, stay awake and pray. Jesus goes away for five minutes, comes back. Peter's asleep, right? Peter's imprisoned. His life is on the line. He's chained up to two guys, and somehow he's sleeping. I don't, I don't know about you. I think I might share that spiritual gift, just being able to sleep. Peter, Peter is at peace. He's just trusting The Lord, I think. Either way, the point here is that Peter is not going to be shawshanking his way out of this, okay? He's stuck in prison. Verse 7, Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. The chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed. And he did not know what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself, like the doors at Walmart. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. So Peter is saved by an angel. It takes him a moment to realize that he thinks he's dreaming or having a vision. He's like, Did somebody put something in in those brownies I had earlier? Like, something is weird here. And then all at once, he comes to his senses and goes, No, God has saved me. And this is a wonderful picture. It's a picture of the salvation of each and every Christian. Asleep, content in the chains of our sin, with light shining all around us. And then all at once, the gospel comes and shakes us awake as if from a dream. The chains of our sin fall off we're told to dress ourselves in the righteous robes of Christ. We're let out of death's cell and into the city of light and life. Friends, there is no prison that God cannot bring you out of. There is no sin, no problem, no addiction that God is not greater than. There is nothing in your life that can chain you down if your trust is in Christ because he has set you free. You don't have to live like a slave or a prisoner anymore because Jesus lives. And he has said, sin shall not be your master for you are not under the law but under grace. I wonder, is your faith in Christ this morning? And if it is, are you living that way? Or are you still holding on to those old chains? Brother, sister, be free. Trust in the one who has overcome the world and who rules over all things. Your situation may be grim. Your heart may be sunken. But God hears the prayers of his people. And he will bring justice. So persevere in your prayers. At this point, though, one has to ask an important question. Why is Peter rescued and James allowed to be executed? had a hard time with that one. Why is James allowed to be executed while Peter gets to go free? I mean, it's not like the church didn't pray for James. They got James and the church like, hey, we don't really like him anyway. Peter, though, we're going to pray for him. No, they, they prayed for both of these men. Did they not pray hard enough for James? They had a little bit more faith when they prayed for Peter? No. There's a silly notion in some circles that um, when you pray for something, you're only going to receive it if you believe hard enough. Friends, that, that's really, really silly. Uh, God is capable of acting regardless of the amount of your faith. He's so powerful. He tells us that the, the tiniest, mustard-seediest faith is more than enough because he is more than enough. So so faith here isn't the problem. It's not a problem. So so what exactly is going on? Let me tell you, I think that we get it backwards and we go, well, my prayers are about how much faith I have and bringing about the result that I want. Faithful praying is not about bringing about your desired outcome. Faithful praying it is not about getting your desired outcome. It's about confidence in God no matter what the outcome. It's not about bringing about your desired outcome. It's about confidence in God no matter what the outcome. This is illustrated really well for us in a pretty famous story. You probably know it of Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Uh, if you don't know it or you haven't heard it in a while, let me refresh you. Uh, these three friends are in exile, the Babylonian exile, uh, and they're just kind of hanging out, doing their thing with Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar builds this big old gold statue, and he says, everybody in all the lands have to bow down and worship this statue, Okay. And some other Babylonians, they get wise to the fact that Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego are not bowing down to the statue. I mean, why would they? They're good Jews. They don't want to break the first and second commandments. Pretty important there. They want to be faithful in being Jewish. They're not going to bow down. And so, uh, you know, these Babylonians that see they're not bowing down, they tattletale, right? They go and tell Nebuchadnezzar, these guys aren't bowing down. And so they get brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And he says to them in verse 15 of chapter 3, Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, I'm not sure what instrument that is, it's an instrument though, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. And so look at how they respond in faith. This is how the prayer of faith works. They say, look, God is perfectly capable of delivering us from this situation. But even if he doesn't, he's still God and we're not going to bow down to you or to anyone else. We don't have certainty about the outcome of this thing. We might get burned alive. But we do have confidence in our God, no matter what the outcome. If you don't know how the story ends, I have to fill in the gaps here. are so good. A fourth person joins them in the furnace after they get thrown in, people are dying trying to get them into the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, how many people did we put in there again? One, two, three? I see four. Is it, you put four in there? like, no, we put three in there. It's like, what is happening? It's either you know, an angel or like a pre-incarnate Jesus. I don't really know. The point is, is that the Lord is supposed to be in there with them, protecting his people. And I love Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. You can see it down in verse 28 of chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. It's pretty intense. Big reversal there for there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Do you love, notice, he answered his own question. Earlier he, he said, who is the God who can rescue from my power? And they're like, our God. So there's no other God who is able to deliver like this. Love that story. Perfect illustration of what our prayers look like when they're faithful. Faithful prayer It's not having certainty about the outcome, but having confidence in God no matter what the outcome. And sometimes the outcome doesn't make sense to us, but God knows best. We're not going to be able to puzzle together every reason for everything that God does in the universe. Like, he's smarter than us, okay? He's, he's God. Us trying to understand everything God has done or will do is like a four-year-old trying to understand the intense calculations of a mathematician. Except for the gap between your knowledge and God's knowledge is far greater than that. God has reasons for doing what he does, even if you can't see him. You've probably heard me use this illustration a hundred times, but I can't resist. Uh, Alvin Plantinga is a philosopher at the University of Notre Dame, and he gives this illustration, and, and I stole it, and I love it. Uh, but he says, if there is a tent, and there's a Saint Bernard in it, and I unzip the tent, and you look in the tent, and you go, Saint Bernard in there? It's obvious, Saint Bernard in there. So, but what if I told you there's a tiny little insect that no one can see, but you always feel its bite? There's, they're called noceums. Because if, if I have a tent full of no-seeums, and I unzip the tent and you look in, not gonna see them. Because they're no seums. His point is this God has millions of reasons for doing the things he does. You just can't see him. But what we can know about God is that he's always acting benevolently. That everything he does is ultimately for our good and his glory. In the the end, he is going to bring justice. So, why does James get rescued and, and not Peter? Only God knows. Only God knows. But I promise you this. There is no complaint in heaven right now about this. James is not in the presence of God, nor will he be here on the new heavens and new earth, and you you meet him in a cafe somewhere having a cup of coffee, and he's like, you know what really sucked? Like that time that God saved Peter and I mean, can you believe that? I mean, maybe in jest. But no, he's looking full in the face of his wonderful Savior. He says, everything my God does is good. Maybe maybe he'd even hit you with that Charles Spurgeon quote. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Or, Or maybe he tells you, any misery that comes into my life and makes me closer to God is a blessing. And when they lopped my head off, I got real close to him real quick. Friends, our God is good. King Jesus rules over everything. He responds to prayer. And so he ought persevere and pray. This is just what the church does when Peter stumbles upon them. Look with me at verse 12. As soon as he realized this, that is that the angel had delivered him from prison, as soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled And were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate. And a servant named Rhoda, meaning little Rose, came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice. And because of her joy, she did not open the gate. But ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. Crazy girl. But she kept insisting that it was true. And they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept knocking. I do love this. Rhoda answers the door and, and he's like, you know, Peter's like knocking, kind of probably clandestine, right? Like, hey, hey, I know you guys are in there. Let me in. And Rhoda's like, Peter. He's like, yeah, it's me. Let me in. Guys, Peter's here. Peter's outside. We've, we've been praying for good stuff to happen. And now Peter's here. <laughs> And they're all like, nah, this girl is out of her mind, lost it. You know, they, they even, there's this common kind of belief uh, that every person had a counter angelic counterpart that looked like them at the time. And this is neither affirming or denying, it's just showing you that they're kind of like, yeah, it's this angel, there's no way that it's Peter out there. And she's like, no, really, he, he's out there. the response demonstrates that they did not anticipate a positive answer to their praying. This is a miracle that they they weren't ready for. I wonder, do you pray like that? And like that, I mean, do you pray without any expectations? Pray going, I'm praying because I would like this to happen, but God's never going to do that. God isn't capable of doing that, or he won't. Do not ever become so discouraged that you pray without expectation. Don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus has overcome the world. He's fully capable of answering our prayers. When you pray, you will receive, not necessarily what you thought you wanted, but what is best. If you knew everything God knew, you would pray for exactly what he gives you. That's how good he is. And so, even if you get something completely opposite of what you prayed for, it's for your good. They aren't praying with expectation. So uh, Rhoda's in there. Peter's here. He's really, really here. And and Peter is comically left outside. Rhoda, come back. Can't find the hide key. Like Somebody didn't put it back under the rock where it belongs. Keeps knocking, and finally they open the door, verse 16, saw him and were amazed, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said. Not James that was just killed. James, the brother of Jesus, not the brother of John. Everybody in the Bible has like three names, and they just try to make it complicated for you. The James that's not beheaded, okay? Uh, author of Acts is not stupid. They didn't go, James was killed, and then Peter's talking. Anyhow. Tell it to the things to James and the brothers, he said. And he went to another place. Peter comes in, they are amazed. God has answered their prayer. And I think the important thing to note here is that they are praying. This is the proper response to almost anything in life is to pray. I say, God, I trust you in this. No matter how it turns out, I trust you. Also notice that they are praying together. I think this is perhaps the most... Um, Hard observation I had this week because I I think as a church we pray during this time together on Sunday morning and there are opportunity uh, there are opportunities before church and there's opportunity on uh, Thursday nights at Bible study and I just don't know how good we're we're doing at praying as a church and so I uh, I've endeavored in response to this don't you love when I just come up with the applications for you all it's great. Uh, uh, What we're going to start doing is the first Sunday night of every month in 2019, we're going to pray together. Fifteen minutes, half an hour at first, you know, so you guys can can build up. We're just going to come together and pray because we need God. I also want to ask, how often do you pray with someone else who's not your spouse? Pray with one another. Pray for one another. Call one another and pray. I'll give you all Judy Brown's number. and You can call her and pray. She'll talk to you. She'll pray with you. She'll talk to you a lot. Love Judy. You know, she needs your encouragement now. She's caring for a friend who's having a hard time physically, getting up every three hours. Pray, call her. Pray with her. We want to pray for people, but this is really a great idea Call the people you're praying for and pray with them. I know you're not going to be able to do that for everyone all the time, but maybe just start small and say, this week one of the people I'm going to pray for, I'm going to call them or I'm going to ask them to coffee or ask them over to my house and I'm going to pray for them. It doesn't have to be long. it can be like two or three minutes. Pray for one another and with one another. This is what the church does. That The church is marked by corporate prayer. We see it over and over and over and over again throughout Acts. The church prays, and God does the miraculous. I also can't help but noticing just how similar this is to Jesus' resurrection. So so Peter is in prison. They think he he is left for dead. But he shows up, and he he tells a servant girl uh, that he's alive. And she goes and tells everybody else, and they don't believe her. Jesus is, is dead and in the tomb. He resurrects and he tells a bunch of women and they go and tell everybody else and nobody believes them. Peter goes into the room and teaches and then he leaves and goes to another place. Jesus, the disciples have themselves locked in a room, hiding, comes into the room, teaches them, and then goes to another place. Friends, all of, all of the Bible, I point out just to show you that Jesus is underneath every text of Scripture. When you read your Bible, think, how does this teach me about Jesus? How can I see Jesus in this text, through this text? Because the good news of this text It's not the salvation of Peter, but the salvation that Peter enjoys because of the resurrection of Jesus. The good news of this text is that these short term kings, like Herod, are short term kings. That Jesus is the real king. That he really does rule and reign. That he really does respond to the prayers of his people. And so, friends, let's, let's take everything to our good and mighty king in prayer. Let's come to him like my kids come to me every five seconds. We need a snack. Daddy, wipe my bottom. Daddy, can we watch this? Can we play with that? Yeah, I'm talking about you, O. Let's come to God like that. Tim Keller has a wonderful illustration. He talks about the only person who dares to wake a king up in the middle of the night to ask for a glass of water is a child. This is the kind of relationship we have with God. We can ask him and he will hear us, cares for us. I love in this chapter we see at first it looks like the church is in peril But at the end, we see in verse 24 that the word of God flourished and multiplied. Friends, in the short term, following Jesus may bring you a cross for your back. Indeed, Jesus has promised it will. But in the long term, will bring to you a crown of life. Because in the long term, Jesus is going to make everything sad, untrue, In the long term, Jesus is going to make all things new. He's going to redeem our bodies. He's going to redeem this earth. We are going to live and enjoy him and fellowship with one another forever. Let us persevere and pray to this end with glory in view. That way, we'll be able to carry our crosses with a smile. Let's pray. Father, You are good. You are so good. Why You would give grace to sinners like us, we cannot fathom. Thank You that You rescue all who will repent of their sin. Stop doing life their way and submit themselves to you. Thank you for the gift of faith. Encourage us this morning to pray and to do it knowing you hear us and that you respond to the prayers of your people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.